in recovery, we have a saying that's very important to us, and it says a family is only as sick as its secrets. And that's the name of this episode of Beyond Risk and Back. Welcome. I am your host, Aaron Huey. My guest today is John Ingham, and we met over on LinkedIn, and he reached out that said, man, I got a, I got a story for you. And I was able to speak with him offline. And holy crap, does this guy's story resonate for so many families, what he's been through, uh, what his life and recovery looks like as he navigates the entire experience with his family. I'm going to let him tell you the rest. Welcome to Beyond Risk and Back for parents of teens that struggle. Thanks for joining me. My guest is John Engham. John, Man, thanks so much. You you've got a lot to talk about. You got a lot to say. I want to get into your story right away. But out of the gate, I want to say thank you for your transparency and willing willingness to to talk about this stuff because it's real. Like this is a no bullshit show. This is you're 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 coming clean uh, in public on a big thing. So thanks, man. I appreciate you. I really appreciate being here. You know, I think that transparency is extremely important with what we deal with because we can only relate to what we know other people are going through. So I'm extremely grateful to be able to tell my story. Well, and and like I said, so many people come, they will be able to relate, which is why I wanted to bring you on. And I have said this so many times in so many of my episodes, when, when parents show up and they are, uh, you know, I, and I say to them in the, in, in the parent weekend, I said, how many of you have had CPS call, called on you because your child was angry at you. And like these people in the front row will raise their hand. I'll be like, turn around and look. And half the other parents have their hands up and they're like, Oh my God. Then I say, how many of you have had your teens steal your car? Now the hands are up and everybody's looking around. And it's like that first Al-Anon or AA or NA meeting where you, you mention your story and it's everybody's story, man. And we, we think we are terminally unique. We're not alone. And I think your story speaks to, a more intense version of this, the idea that what you went through, other people have gone through, uh, that's a lot. So let's just start at the beginning. How long are have you been in recovery, man? Um, so uh, I, I like to start off by just saying I'm a person in long-term recovery. I, uh, I got sober on August 3rd of 2014. And what I mean by recovery is that I have remained abstinent uh, from all mind-altering substances, including drugs and alcohol, since that point in time. So for that, I'm extremely grateful. So I'm coming up on about uh, I'm six and a half years sober at this point. Congratulations. Thank you so much. So it was in the 12-step rooms that you found sobriety, or were you in treatment? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I actually, uh, I went to treatment seven times uh, all through the course of my addiction, trying to find different ways in order to really... I just couldn't figure out how to get sober. And what it really came down to was I wasn't listening to people. I wanted to do things my way. Um, so finally, on this last go around in treatment, I got out, I relapsed for a couple of weeks, and then I got sober again, and it stuck. I, I went into the rooms of AA. Um, and, you know, I've done various programs, actually. I've done 12-step programs, uh, Smart Recovery Refuge, uh, all of the above. And, you know, what I found is that there, there's no one set way to w the way my recovery works. The important thing is I keep my legs moving constantly. So, so now let's jump back to the beginning and then near, uh, you know, when, when you finish telling your beginning story, we'll, we'll jump back, back to the end and talk about what you're doing now. So back to the beginning, first time, how did it start? What was going on? 
Um, so actually, uh, you know, my first use was, uh, it was kind of interesting. I, I, I looked back on it after I got sober and realized that this was the first time I had actually used, um, was when I went to, I was about, I believe eight years old. Um, and I went to a concert, uh, with my mom, um, and it was a George Thorogood and Steve Miller band concert. And she got past a joint and she blew smoke in my face. And I ended up falling asleep on like at the concert with all of these loud amps and everything going on. It was a really, really wild concert, but I ended up falling asleep. And, you know, I remember, uh, I remember the feeling that it gave me. Um, and I didn't remember exactly why until after I got sober, it was a feeling that I really enjoyed. Um, and you know, that was something that continued into, uh, later on my early teens, I started using, uh, drugs and alcohol from there. Uh, more, more by choice, I would get, I, I would say at that point. Um, and, you know, just kind of dove a little bit deeper. Um, my, uh, my use is extended with my family, uh, through various substances like meth, heroin, uh, prescription pills, uh, Xanax, you know, uh, Percocet, whatever, you, whatever you can find. Basically we were, a we were a pharmaceutical location in that regard. What do you consider the gateway for your own use? Uh, you know, because the argument will come up, it's weed, it's cigarettes, it's trauma. Where, what was your, what was your gateway? Man, I, I like, I don't consider any of the drugs that I did specifically a gateway. Um, what I think was my true gateway was my family. Um, you know, the, the reason I say that is because, you know, when I was growing up, I wasn't considered to be the person that was more than likely going to college. I wasn't considered to be the person who was more than likely going to have a career. Um, you know, my entire mom's side of my family were addicts, really, like the majority of them, right? Um, and so, like, in my eyes, that's, you know, kind of what I was raised to become. So my gateway was more or less just like my, my own thought process around what I was worth. And that's what ended up driving me into my use at some point in my life. And then, you know, eventually led to a full blown addiction. Did you grow up around it? Did you see it a lot? Was it casual drinking in your family? You said you had a lot of addicts. Does this mean when you were at family reunions, people were passed out on the floor? Say more about your extended family use. So believe it or not, there wasn't a lot of alcohol in the house. Um, you know what it came down to. So my mom was really good at hiding um, a lot of the stuff inside of her addiction. Um, she, she kept it from the surface. It was more or less my siblings that I saw a lot of the time with their use. Um, and that is, you know, my, my stepbrother, I, I had heard stories that he was on meth for a while. Uh, my sister was, uh, you know, she started off early. She was about eight years older than me, huffing gas, um, doing methamphetamine, doing cocaine, uh, prescription pills. And so it was just, it was all over the place. Not a lot of alcohol. It was more street drugs. And then my mom introduced me to it later on when I got to my teens, uh, that she was actually using. Now, what do you mean by introduced you to it? The, the way that she got her start, and I'll kind of just dive back a little bit further than my life even started, um, was that she was a, uh, she's a veteran of the air force and, uh, through her VA benefits, she was seeing doctors that were giving her prescription pills. Um, and so when she was actually in, uh, when she was actually in the service, her sergeant had given her methamphetamine to deal with extra duties. So that way she could stay up for extended periods of time, because it was more of a, it was a prescription drug at that point. Right. Um, there was, I can't remember what the exact name of the prescription pill was that was out at the time, but it was methamphetamine. 
Um, and people were using it in order to stay awake, do chores, things like that. Uh, the same way that we use Adderall or Vyvanse or any right. of those uh, prescriptions today, right? Um, and that kind of just transitioned into her really diving into a full-blown addiction herself. And, you know, when she became a veteran, um, she basically had an entire pharmacy at her disposal. Her doctor would prescribe her anything. Um, towards the end of when I was uh, in her life, uh, the VA was prescribing her 275 Percocet per month um, and 90 Xanax bars per month. So two milligram bars of uh, Xanax prescription per month. Um, with all of that, she shared with us, you know, um, it wasn't seen as a taboo in my household. Um, and I, I, like I said, I've used meth with my mom. I've used heroin with my mom. Um, I've actually, the lowest point inside of my addiction was the point when I actually shot my mom up with heroin, uh, because she couldn't find a vein. And that was a really low point for me, you know? Um, so that, that, that's what I mean by that. The extent of how much she introduced to me, there was a lot of it that we were just between her and my sister and myself, it was just this triangle of addiction. It's interesting because, you know, you tell this story and so many people who don't understand what it means to be an addict, right? And we're, we're a lot of, a lot of my audience, these are moms and dads of kids who are struggling and they're wondering at the choices that are being made. And when you say something like that, when you talk about your mom sharing Xanax and sharing Percocet with you and 270 pills a month, are you kidding me? Like there's no way to consume that much unless you're in full blown dependency mode. Like it's just, it's, I, it, it baffles me it, it, that, that those numbers baffle me. And there's an, a lack of responsibility to that. But when you talk about the decisions that were being made, when people hear that there was a there was a moment in my in in my the the last days of my using before my recovery that I was offered a choice of time with my child or to continue using drugs, and I chose drugs. So so talk about real quick decision making process from from those places. Well, so, you know, it's kind of funny because I still use those in my life today. Um, a lot of times, you know, my decision-making process comes down to pros and cons lists that I make for myself with anything that I do. So the same thing happened inside of my addiction where, you know, I would make pros and cons lists mentally. And, you know, once the cons really, really heavily started outweighing the, the good things that were going on, is when I consciously made the decision to try a different way of life. Um, so, you know, a couple of moments that really define that for me, and I, I don't mind talking about these, are, um, you know, my, my sister back in 2012, actually two days from now, it'll be eight years since she passed, oh. or nine years since she passed. And uh, she died from a overdose on those prescription pills that I had just told you guys about where, you know, my mom was sharing them with us. And so, you know, that was a real defining moment inside of my personal recovery. I believe that's where my recovery journey started. I don't believe this is, I, I didn't get sober then, right? It was in 2012. I didn't get sober until 2014, but my recovery journey really started at that point because I decided I did not want to end up being another statistic. I just didn't know how, right? So it took me a couple more years of trial and error, figuring out new ways in order to remain abstinent for a little bit longer this time, a little bit longer this time until it finally stuck. 
Now that's amazing because that that's one of the things we're we're talking about is the 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 idea that uh, a sister's death. I had a guest on who talked about a car accident that he was in that you know destroyed his body, messed it up so bad, and continued to drink. You know that that here I am. I lost my marriage. I lost my home. I lost. I and I say lost when the truth is I actually traded. Right. That's what we do is we trade these things for the ability to continue whatever this path we're on. But not even your, your sister's death was the thing that said not yet, but that, that was a, what was missing? Like, like what, 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 what else did you have to lose after that? That was the moment where you said now, now, okay, now, you know, to be quite honest with you, that was my rock bottom, uh, with the exception of when I started shooting at my mom, which happened a couple of years later, okay. um, those two things combined are what really drove me in order to finally, uh, you know, listen to people around me. Um, I, I couldn't have lost a lot more. Right. But I think that, you know, having, I, I used because I was seeking love and connection for my family around me. Right. Once my sister was gone and once my mom was no longer recognizable by me, I no longer had that love and connection that I was seeking through, through drugs and alcohol. And so it was time for me to start seeking that in different ways because what I was doing was killing me too. And I would never get what I was looking for. So that's what really um, also saved my life was not only listening to the people around me, but building up those really fantastic relationships with other people that were like-minded other people that were getting sober, you know, uh, just creating meaningful relationships and having coping strategies too. I mean, who would have thought that, you know, drugs and alcohol could be a coping strategy for somebody, no matter what they're feeling, but that's what it was to me. So I had to learn to experience sadness, anger, happiness, even without putting a drug inside of my system in order to negate the feeling. So that's huge. And this is why this is such an important story for for people to be hearing parents to be hearing because they're, they're only on the side of, uh, uh, the experience with their kids who are in the, the, the actions and results. So the, 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 the risky actions and, and the accompanying results. But you said you, you're talking about two different things. Like the first thing that you said in your last conversation that really struck me was, how long rock bottom can last. Most people who don't understand addiction think it's a point you hit and the next day you're done and done. Man, mine lasted, uh, I'm going to say about nine months of life at rock bottom, just sitting there in the bottom of this pit with a shovel wondering how you're going to dig up. And every time you try, you just get a little lower, right? That there was only one way out and that was to stop digging. <laughs> but, the, but you, you were at rock bottom for a couple of years. I mean, that's, that's massive. That's a lot of depression. That's a lot of shame. All of those things reinforce the desire to use. And then as you're coming out, you have this journey of reconnection with people who are making these other choices. Did you find these other people in the 12 step rooms? Was this your last treatment program or was this just you on your own actually working tools and steps, um, and reaching out to people on your own? Like what was the recovery process like? So, um, it's actually kind of an interesting story. So I, I, my, my dad and my mom separated when I was really little. Um, right. My dad is uh, a normie as we call it. (laughs) Uh, so he's not an addict whatsoever. 
um, he had moved out to uh, Los Angeles uh, whenever I was about, I think, two or three years old. Can't really remember because I was too young at that point. Uh, but, you know, we would visit occasionally, but I lived primarily with my mom. So once I realized that I wanted to get sober, um, it, well, once I made a positive attempt in order to get sober, I moved out to Los Angeles to be near him because he was a positive role model inside of my life. Um, and he was the only family that I had at that point who I could really trust to support my recovery. Now, I didn't get sober right as soon as I moved there because, once again, I found the community around me of people. I found a negative community sure. when I got to Los Angeles. Um, so I went to treatment a couple more times. Um, and then after, uh, after this last time, like I said, I had gotten sober. I, I waited a couple of months. I still had no community. I didn't really have anybody around me that supported me. And it was really a struggle um, to stay sober when I was out there. Well, my dad got a job opportunity in Austin, Texas. Um, and asked me if I wanted to move with them. And I was like, you know what? I got nothing else to lose. So um, on the plane flight over there, I remember thinking to myself that I have two options. I can either go and do the next right thing, end up in some sort of meeting hall and uh, be around people that are wanting to be sober, or I can go find a shot of heroin and make this the exact same thing as what I've done with everything in my past, which is just to keep on using. And, um, whenever I got to Austin, I went to a meeting that night and, uh, I met who is now my best friend today. Um, he was the first person I met when I got to Austin, Texas, and we remain best friends to this day. Um, the next day after I met him, he took me out and he introduced me to a ton of people, right? It was this really wild thing because he had my best interest at heart before I even knew the guy. He just put me in his car, took me to meetings, started having me talk to people. And that's how our friendship built. And I was able to build up this whole community of people around me that really just wanted to see me do well. And that was what was extremely important to me was that for the first time in my life, all of these people around me were telling me, you can hold a job. You can go to school if you want to. You can stay sober. You don't have to turn out as another statistic, just like your sister did. You have all these other opportunities. All you have to do in this moment is just try. And so that's how it kind of worked for me. It seems, and, and I know none of the none of the listeners know your what you do now, but between you and I, and soon all the listeners, it seems like that moment has has truly informed who you are now and how you connect others who who asked for the same thing, how in, in the beginning, when you start, you're, you're, you've moved to Austin, you're, you've met this guy, he's showing you around to a new life, a new experience of what friendships can be like and look like. What was the pullback? How, how was there a relapse or was that the last moment? And how was, and what was the struggle like? to want to use, even though you got this good thing going? You know, it's kind of interesting because, um, you know, the way that my disease of addiction works is that, you know, if I don't have other coping strategies or tools in place, no matter how good it gets, I keep wanting to go back out and use again because it's all I feel comfortable with. Right. Um, when I was talking about those coping strategies with my emotions earlier, I'm somebody who naturally, I don't feel comfortable being sad. I don't feel comfortable being angry. I don't feel comfortable being happy even. I feel comfortable being numb. 
And so that's what I had to learn to get away from. And that was the big deal for me. So there was a lot of struggle whenever I got here, but I kept on having to, you know, raise myself up. What I really did was just took a deep dive into the program that I was working in recovery at the time. Um, I got involved with various committees. I actually took a position as a sober living house manager. I do not recommend that to anybody. It's a very <laughs> difficult job. It's <laughs> um, a tough one. And, you know, I just surrounded myself. To this day, I really don't think I know or see a lot of people that drink or use drugs. My dad doesn't even drink around me. He, he doesn't, refuses to drink alcohol around me. So I, I don't think I interact with a lot of drinkers and drug users at this point either. Are you able to be around it at all? I, I mean, you know, yeah. or, okay. So, so you're in, you can go out to dinner with people at a, at a brew uh, pub and just order a diet Coke, you know, or something else. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, it's, it's interesting. So I, I worked at a wine bar whenever I first got sober. Wow. Um, I, I was a barista and, you know, drinking wasn't really my thing. So there was a little bit of an ease inside of my mind being able to be around that. Right. But um, obviously, you know, the service industry is riddled with yeah. uh, people that are drug addicts, alcoholics, you name it. There's so much going on inside of that space. And so what, what was kind of interesting was that instead of being, uh, you know, kind of moved towards what they were doing, um, I was the person that they knew that they could talk to about their issues whenever they were coming up because I was the recovered person. And ironically enough, whenever I started managing that sober living house, get this, uh, one night I get a knock on the door from our new resident. It's one of the servers that worked at the restaurant that I did at the time. Wow. <laughs> and, you know, we, I, I was just known as that person for a while because I took that really deep dive into the recovery process I, I just wasn't willing to give it up. You know, um, the way I kind of explain it to people today after six and a half years is that uh, I don't know if I was to go out tomorrow and pick up a beer, if I would have a full blown relapse. But at this point, I'm not willing to risk it because I have built up so much and I had lost so much inside of my addiction. There's just no point, right? My life is so much better inside of recovery than it could ever possibly be if I decided that I wanted to have a beer every now and then. There's just, there's no reason behind it. Yeah, I cannot agree with you more. I know not everybody practices an abstinence model. I have family members who do very well smoking pot every now and then and, and having a beer at night and they, you know, coming off of heroin and meth addiction and stuff like that. I just, I'm terrified. I'm terrified yeah. of the idea because I remember very clearly who I was compared to who, who I am. I hold on to my regrets because those regret, regrets keep me in the straight and narrow path. Um, and it's boring sometimes. It sucks to go to a party and you know what's going to happen. 45 minutes into the party, you feel the looseness start and people start, they forget and they say, Aaron, do you want to drink? Oh no, sorry, I forgot, dude. And then an hour and a half later, the, the tipsy has gone to drunk and now people are like, dude, I probably, I'm an alcoholic myself and I should do what you're doing, but I just love beer. Ha ha ha. And two hours in, you're petting the dog and that's what you, the rest of your night is just either at their bookcase, looking at their books or hanging with their dog or cat. And it, the parts of it suck. And that, that, yeah. that, that, that struggles real. And there, there gets a point where you don't want to trade back. I want to, I want to ask, uh, and then I want to take a break and then, and then transition into the things you're doing now, because 
honestly, your story's great, but what you do now is why I brought you onto the show. And it's because I want parents to hear that people like you are out there in this world. But before we transition, I want to know about the relationship with your mom. And I, and as, as much as you're willing to talk about and share, I'm open to, but how, how is it now? How does it go? What have you decided with, with everything? So, uh, my, my relationship with my mother has been really strained throughout my recovery. You know, um, the way that my dad puts it is that I was always her biggest defender. Um, I had an opportunity to move out to his place whenever I was 12 years old and decided against it because I wanted to protect my mom from the man she was currently with, which was my stepdad. He was a very abusive person. So I, I was constantly trying to stand up for her. And, you know, in a lot of ways, I was trying to be the parent in the situation. And that put a lot of strain on me through my whole life. And then once I got into recovery, um, I had to learn to take a step back and take care of myself. Because, you know, one of the things that, especially working in this field and uh, working with other people in recovery constantly has taught me is that if I'm not taking care of myself first and putting myself first, nothing else comes to follow. I can't have the fiance that I have today. I can't have anything uh, because I, you know, it's just like they tell you on the airplane, you got to put the oxygen self or on yourself first, uh, before you help the person next to you. Um, so translating into what that looks like today is, you know, I've, I've honestly had to give up the relationship with my mother, um, which only happened a couple of months ago because, you know, uh, she had told me that she had been sober and I don't really know because she's living, you know, a thousand miles away from me. But what I do recognize is that the same behaviors that were cropping up and that do crop up for addicts and alcoholics were still coming up for her. And it was just too toxic for me to keep around inside of my life. And so I decided that, you know, I, I would be here in the future if things changed. But for right now, I need to I need to love from a distance and let go of some of the hope that I have too, you know, that things will eventually get better. Cause that, that's one cycle that I think a lot of kids in my position get caught up in is that maybe one day it, it's the cycle of abuse, right? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe one day it'll get better. Maybe one day they'll change. And it, time and time again, you're just disappointed uh, with the fact that they won't change. And it really wears on you. It's really, really wearing on you. Uh, so I just figured what was best for me and the relationships that I'm trying to foster today was, walk away. Um, which is unfortunate. You know, I, I, like, I, I love my mom. Um, I want to make that very clear. I love my mom. And I know that her teaching me to grow up the way that she did was just her doing what she know what to do best. It had nothing to do with her as a person. She's a good person. She just doesn't know any better. And that's the unfortunate thing when it comes to addiction is that a lot of us just don't know any better. We're inherently good people right? Um, a, a lot of the people that I meet inside of recovery, they're fantastic individuals. Uh, it's just, you know, a few things that you got to work on because, you know, we just don't know how to live life the way it's meant to be lived. I guess I have to ask this question before I break, because I thought about it and I, and I know I said I was going to do a quick shout out, but before that, what, what came up for me is, is saying like, if, if your mom was listening to this episode, just, just on the off chance that she was hearing it and recognize your voice, what would be the thing that you would say to her right now? You know, I, I would say that the, I, I, there, there's nothing else I would say besides I love you. Um, because I've tried to say anything else that I possibly could. The only thing that I can stress enough 
is that I love her with all of my heart and I want nothing but what's best for her and for her to be healthy and safe. That's it. And it's got to be the healthiest thing, the the way you put that, because the truth is, is that she's not your student. You're not her sponsor. You're her son. And so, yeah. again, like I, like, like I said at the beginning, your your transparency is is off the hook. And, and I appreciate that so much. So, listen, parents, this is this is the part where you know, I, I talk about. Uh, what's going what's going on behind the scenes with Beyond Risk and Back. I started Beyond Risk and Back to make sure that every parent has the information that those of us who work in the industry have. That this that that is not just the people who have the facilities or or are sponsoring other clients are the ones who know what we know about mental illness and about addiction. That that this stuff gets shared with everybody so that you can get the support that you need. And so what I need to say right now as we get into this is something that I perhaps have neglected to say in the past. If you're wondering whether or not your child needs treatment, I want you to call my facility Fire Mountain Programs and ask because there are facilities like mine out there that will say, hey, uh, I, I hear your concern, I hear your support, your kid's not ready for treatment or yeah, this sounds like your kid's ready for treatment and here's what you need to get into play. We can teach you how to talk to your insurance company, we can teach you whether or not an intensive outpatient is needed first. Uh, all these types of questions that you have and wondering, you are not committed with the phone call, what you are is connected. And one of the things that we also want to put out there, one of the things that I want to say is that if you know that it's not time for treatment, but you think you're headed that way, contact me. Let's get you into a coaching arena for three months. Let's you and me work together for three months and see if together we can't help you steer your kid back from risky behavior into the green, as I like to call it, where there, where we can avoid treatment because treatment's expensive mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, and financially. So if you're on parenting teens that struggle and you're catching this and you think you're catching it early and not just headed towards the treatment thing, but you still need support, stay here on Parenting Teens That Struggle because we've got all kinds of support for you. But if you're also looking for some one-on-one -on -one time, I have limited time during the weeks and I got you. I do have a lot of clients, but I do have space for more. So if you want to, hit me up at Aaron at FireMountainPrograms.com. Let's talk one-on-one -on -one about parent coaching. And if you think your kid does need treatment or if you're wondering if they do, Call 303-443-3343 and talk to our admissions department. Tina used to be our clinical director. We can talk to you about what's truly going on. Okay, parents, thank you for staying with me through that conversation. Let's get back to John because, again, as I said, where he was is half of where he's at because where he's at is why I brought him on the show. So fast forwarding to when we spoke to each other the other day after we made the connection on LinkedIn, John, Man, what you're doing now is is incredible, and and I and I, as my memory serves, you help addicts get into college. Is I, that's an oversimplification? I know because you've worked in a sober high school, you've done sponsorship work, but now you've got this mission of helping addicts get into college. That's and phenomenal because I know every single parent listening is like, this thing's going to keep my kid out of college. This thing's going to keep my kid out of future yeah. life, whatever. And you're the guy, you're the guy they go to. So talk about what you're doing, man. 
Yeah, definitely. So uh, I work for an organization called Alpha 180. Alpha 180 is a uh, a collegiate program or a, a program transitional program, I'll say, uh, for collegiate age males between the ages of 17 and 26. It's kind of adjustable on that scale. But what we really want to do is help those aspiring or current students who are struggling to either stay in school or get in school or may have dropped out of school in order to maintain their recoveries, continue their academics and you know, figure out how to do those things. I told you guys about how I grew up, um, not believing that I was able to accomplish certain things. That's the same way a lot of uh, addicts and alcoholics feel whenever they're at a young age. And, you know, we provide a safe space for them to be able to do that. Um, so if they have uh, substance use issues, uh, then they can come to us, get matched with uh, academic recovery support specialists, ag- education specialists, uh, which basically act as tutors and, you know, helping sign up for applications, uh, whether it be into an undergrad or graduate program or whatever the case may be, uh, really pushing them along in the right direction. So that way they can maintain those really solid grades. And, you know, just to give another thing about how amazing our academic team is, I think that we had a 3.6 GPA on our last semester as a collective. So 3.6 GPA for all of our students inside of our program, which is absolutely amazing, right? Um, and while they're doing that, they actually get to live inside of our sober living house, uh, which is all collegiate age males. So it's a bunch of college guys inside of West Campus uh, next to the University of Texas at Austin. We've got eight campuses around Austin uh, of different colleges and universities. So it's a really eclectic group of guys that we get. Uh, they can go pretty much anywhere, do pretty much anything. We have a firm belief that we can achieve anything that we set our minds to. So that's what we really try and drive home to these guys. Um, A lot of the clinical work that we do inside of our program is uh, trauma-based, right? Because, you know, the way that trauma was taught to me personally was that if you have parents, you have trauma. And that's just the reality of it. Every parent listening to this and every parent that's going to listen to this, A, remember, we're talking about your parents, not you. Yeah, yeah. You, you did it all right. No, my God, my kids are 25, 26 right now. They, they have informed me exactly what, what, uh, I did to them. So it, it will yeah. come back, but keep going, John. Yeah, no worries. You know, uh, trauma can range anything from big T to little T. And that's the thing is that we really take a dive in and try and figure out what the root of what's actually going on inside of that person's life and help them to resolve it so that way they can move forward in a positive way. So, you know, that's the plug that I really wanted to give to uh, Alpha 180. And I, I want to give you guys some information if you guys yeah. want to hear anything else from us. Uh, you can reach out via phone at 833-257-4218. Uh, you can email me personally at john at alpha180.com or visit us on our website at www.alpha180.com. And just so you guys know, the website's going to be updating here soon. So if you have information that you're looking for, maybe your kid's getting ready in a couple of months or something like that, there's going to be some new information that's out there too, uh, just so you guys know. And also another piece of our program that's really cool that we've just started to drive up is we're offering uh, our intensive outpatient program uh, as a a la carte option for somebody who comes to us. So let's say that somebody really just wants to participate in you know, those uh, three, uh, three groups per week at three hours per week. 
Uh, they get all of that, but they also get to go on trips and excursions, which is a huge thing. We just took our, all of our students to Taos, New Mexico. We did a week long trip to Colorado last August. Uh, we do all sorts of fun activities like that. We provide five nights of dinner at our cl clubhouse as well, which is really cool. You know, uh, a lot of us grew up not having family dinners. So we want to create that family aspect where all the guys can sit down, break bread, all of that good stuff. So all of that stuff is included into our programs. And like I said, if you have any more information that you need, just reach out. It's amazing. Uh, Alpha180.com, John at Alpha180.com is your email address. John, when we talked earlier, you were you had told me that uh, you guys had connection to Jay Walker Lodge. Um, yeah. wh what, what is that connection again, just so I don't misrepresent? Yeah, so um, actually Bob Ferguson, uh, the owner of Jay Walker Lodge, decided back in 2016, I believe is when they started planning, that they, he wanted to uh, start up the program of Alpha 180. He had the idea that he really wanted to create a community of guys that were college-age males where they felt comfortable, they could be safe and get sober together. So that's what we are. We're, we're owned by uh, Bob Ferguson. Our executive director is Nico Dorn. Um, he's you know, been a part of a lot of recovery communities out in Tennessee. Um, so, you know, we've got a very eclectic group of guys that are with us, but that's our connection to Jay Walker. Yeah. Jay Walker. I've had them on the show in the past. They're a really great place, uh, yeah. in, in, uh, Carbondale, right. In Carbondale, Colorado. I can't remember which city it is. Yeah. I, I, I yeah. Okay. Um, but I should know that. You know, really, just really fine people. Eighteen and up uh, program. Uh, uh, just, just solid folk, and it's, it's, it's been, a, it's been great talking back and forth and sharing tricks of the trade with them as a facility. Love them. Great reputation, um, John. At the end of this, knowing that you're talking to parents of teens that are struggling, having been a a parent who, I'm sorry, having been a teen who struggled with his parents, what can you say to the parents who are listening to give them a leg up on their kids who are they're wondering, is my kid addicted to weed? Are they addicted to video games? How could they possibly be addicted to cutting? They're running away like an addict. They're throwing fits around their cell phone like an addict. Like it, I, I talked to parents that the way the kid treats the cell phone, that if it was pills, they'd be like, my kid's a drug addict. And so can they call their kid a phone addict? Like, like, what do you want parents to know about these struggles as a teen who was with parents who also struggled? You know, the biggest suggestion that I can make for any parents out there, and this is just coming from my experience with my own father, um, was that the first thing to always look out for is to make sure that you're taking care of yourself, that you're not getting too built up on the things that, you know, your teenager might be doing because it'll wear you, it'll tear you, you'll go through all of the same things with them. The difference between the addict and the family is that the addict has drugs in order to cope with all the feelings that they're feeling. The family doesn't get that experience, right? So make sure that you're taking care of yourself first and foremost, because the only way that you're going to be able to walk through that with the individual who is struggling is if your stuff is in check first. Um, until you do that, it's really hard and you get caught up in a lot of enabling practices. My dad, you know, I, I love my dad to death, but he was an enabler. <laughs> it's just the reality of it because, you know, a lot of what we have to do as family members of alcoholics and addicts is counterintuitive to what we think we need to do. You know, we, we think that we need to be right up close with this person, monitor them, 
uh, be really, really heavily involved with whatever is going on, recovery or addiction or whatever the case may be. But the reality is, is that taking a step back and making that, letting them make their own mistakes for me personally allows for them to get the place they need to a little bit quicker. Right. Well, uh, you hammered it. And I know the parents on parenting teens that struggle are tired of hearing that from not only me on every episode about take care of yourself first, your adult relationship, second, your children, third, but it's, it has to be acknowledged that every single expert that I have ever had on this show, when it comes time to an advice, that's their advice. Take care of yourself first, take care of yourself yeah. first. So yeah. maybe if we hear it a thousand times, we'll start to consider it. But as you and I both know, uh, an addict will try everything before they try recovery. And uh, we will, we will constantly try our old patterns a thousand different ways before we take on a new one. So that's why we got to say it a thousand times. John, I just want to say thank you for your transparency, for sharing your story at such a deep, heartfelt level. It was incredible. I really appreciate you, man. Yeah, I'm happy to be on here. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. I'm going to hang on for a second while I sign us all out. Parents, uh, as always, thank you for listening to Beyond Risk and Back. Of course, I'm going to say it again. Take care of yourselves first, your adult relationship second, and your children third, because that's how we do and make our best decisions. Our best work happens that way with our kids and that's why we put them third and i know it feels backwards i know it feels counterintuitive but really what kind of parent do you want to be be one that has taken care of yourself model that that's the long-term investment in the children i want to thank your cause consulting for their work and getting my show in front of the right people and making us a number one parenting podcast i also want to thank uh deep in productions for the killer music that we have on this show and for editing these shows to make them sound way, way better. And to my guest, John Ingham, for coming and being so transparent and uh, so uh, just what a great story. Wow, how, how fantastic. Parents, thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next week on another episode of Beyond Risk and Back. <laughs>